I am uh, Nicolas Bornoz of Capital Inc. And I would like to welcome you all to uh, today's uh, uh, forum. This is our second uh, decarbonization forum. And uh, we have uh, a great uh, agenda. We are starting uh, the first day of our forum with the topic of uh, alternative fuels. Alternative fuels is clearly one of the key considerations in the path to decarbonization. Uh, I will turn the floor over to uh, Mr. George Plevrakis of uh, ABS. George is Vice President for Global Sustainability for ABS. And then I will have, uh, I will kindly ask George to welcome uh, our distinguished speakers. Thank you all for joining and thank you George and the panelists for being with us. No. Uh, thank you, Nicolas, for uh, uh, honoring us again with an invitation. Um, again, for in way of introduction, I'm Gerald Plevrakis, Vice President of Global Sustainability for the American Bureau of Shipping. As I said earlier, I have the great honor of being your host for this panel uh, in, the in the context of uh, the always insightful and thought-provoking capital link events. Um, this panel discussion will bring together industry leaders, uh, representing organizations with pioneering decarbonization activities. Um, organizations that explore differ different fuel pathways from methanol to biofuels, LNG to hydrogen and ammonia. We will analyze the fuel options uh, that uh, exist to achieve IMOs 2030 and 2050 greenhouse gas targets. And our panelists will provide their unique perspective on the challenges and opportunities related to the adoption, scaling up, required infrastructure, uh, challenges, opportunities, uh, as well as how the fuel options are evolving. Needless to say, uh, how humbled I am uh, looking at the background uh, of our panelists. And I will go straight away uh, by welcoming them and introducing them one by one. Um, being uh, again cautious and fully aware of uh, the fact that uh, this is a very interesting discussion and deserves um, the time allocated to it. So, uh, starting from uh, uh, Ms. Karis Lakandonaki, Chief Strategy Officer of Starbuck uh, Carriers, um, welcoming you on board. Um, good, uh, good evening, uh, Ms. Lakandonaki, uh, welcome on board. Um, Mr. Mark Cameron, Chief Operating Officer, our Tarmor Shipping. Welcome to our panel. Looking forward for the discussion. Mr. Modi Mano, Director and Founder of uh, MC Capital. Mr. Mano, welcome on board. And Mr. Badar, uh, Executive Vice President, Maritime Policy and Government Affairs of the MSC Group. Welcome aboard. Pleasure having you. Now, um, I mentioned at the beginning that this is a very interesting discussion uh, when, we're, when we always discuss about fuels. Uh, the discussion develops arm, arms, legs, tails, heads, whatever. Um, so I will go straight to the chase. Um, I, will, I will start by the uh, individual that I introduced last in, uh, in the list by Mr. Badar. Um, we see that there is a global competition for LNG uh, is spiking prices. And that means that uh, many of the LNG dual fuel vessels delivered will be um, burning MGO or HFO for the foreseeable future. How do you see the cost of alternative fuels impacting uh, strategic decisions? 
Well, uh, first of all, let me say it's a, a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, when it comes to alternative fuels, I, I think any of them, we had the expectation were going to be significantly more expensive than the costs that we're used to paying for fuels. So we should keep in mind when we think about costs in the future, it won't just be the cost of production and, and delivery through a midstream that's still got to be built yet. And those of us involved in LNG know you're kind of paying for uh, the infrastructure as you go. That may be the case with these other fuels too. So it's important when we think about costs, we don't think about the commodity cost, but we think about the delivered cost. Now this transient in LNG prices uh, in the marketplace has certainly had an impact, but I think we can look for over time, those markets to normalize somewhat again back into a more natural state. And also, uh, I do think that as we see external costs be brought in through the form of regulation one way or the other, and that could take the form of imposition of a carbon price through one or more market-based measures. We certainly know one major one is coming uh, in the EU at this point, probably starting in, in next year as we anticipate. All of those things I think will ultimately work to bridge the gap between the fuels we're using regularly today and those we're using tomorrow. Something interesting you know, happened with this transient in LNG prices in the marketplace, and that is the actual cost to the producers of bio-LNG uh, became much more competitive with the fossil energy, which was in the market. And I, I think that's a bit of an eye-opener for all of us as to um, what is possible when you look at volatility, not only in the natural marketplace, but what gets imposed from the outside. But I, I think we're going to see um, uh, an increase in the range of, say, two to eight, eight times what we've customarily paid for fuel. And we need to anticipate that. We need to anticipate how we're going to distribute that throughout the value chain or else we don't have a business to, to, to look after in the long term and a service to provide. Um, but I do think there'll be costs that uh, ultimately will, will be absorbed as other costs uh, have been along the way. It just everybody's got to be prepared for that, especially our, our customers, and they need to be realistic about it. Excellent points, and I do, I do not uh, the uh, the points about the transient nature and the fact that um, there are also uh, schemes and regulations that might might bridge some uh, some gaps. I also liked uh, uh, your point on the bio LNG and the fact that uh, there is there were some significant developments there, and uh, it shows that um, carbon neutral fuels might also be. Um, coming into our mix sooner than later. Um, on that note, and because there, is, there has been a great discussion about how um, alternative fuels will be introduced uh, in our uh, fuel mix, uh, particularly zero carbon fuels. And I'd like to turn to Ms. Plakantonaki. Um, how do we see ammonia, particularly the green shades of uh, of that fuel. Um, do you see uh, green ammonia being able to make a significant contribution to uh, shipping uh, emissions um, by 2030 or even beyond that onwards to 2040? Thank you, Georgios. It is great to be here today. Hello, everyone. Um, now, uh, green ammonia is, is, of course, attractive because it is a zero-emission fuel and also because it does not require carbon for its production. 
Now, why is this good? This is good because um, it can ensure scalability in the production of this specific fuel. And also it can make sure that it is cost competitive in the long run, especially if we also see other industries using it as an alternative fuel. Another positive of ammonia is that today it's already shipped in large volumes as a cargo. We already have existing infrastructure, for example, in West Australia. Now, having said that, uh, the large drawback for ammonia is its toxicity. Uh, so ammonia is highly toxic, and uh, uh, in that respect, it's critical that we do see safety standards moving forward uh, in terms of its uh, handling and storage, uh, whether on board, but also in, uh, in ports and in bankering hubs. And we, we all know uh, by now in shipping, but also in other industries, that safety comes first. So it is imperative that uh, uh, we have the safety standards in place before uh, we're able to proceed with uh, using ammonia as a fuel. Uh, also, there, there isn't any uh, ammonia uh, engine at the moment, an engine that, uh, an internal combustion engine that is able to burn ammonia. Uh, it's not commercially available yet. We know that there are projects uh, currently underway. So we also need to, to see developments on that front. Uh, now, as to the uh, supply and uh, demand for green ammonia, uh, Starbuck is uh, participating in an iron ore consortium along with um, uh, miners such as BHP and Rio Tinto, but also the shipping company Oldendorf. And uh, within the context of that project, we're not looking at the uh, technical or safety aspects of ammonia, but we are uh, trying to analyze the supply and demand. As we mentioned, the Orios uh, are up to 2030, 2040, even 2050, uh, but also what would be the necessary um, agreements, uh, commercial agreements, in order to be able to pass on the additional cost that will come up uh, uh, regards to ammonia. Uh, also, uh, we, uh, we do see as necessary the involvement of governments in bridging the competitiveness gap between conventional fuels and zero emission fuels. Therefore, within the scope of that project, we will also try to engage governments in order to determine what are the necessary policy mechanisms in order to be in a position to make uh, green ammonia cost competitive. Thank you. No, thank you, Ms. Lakadonaki. Uh, very insightful, particularly um, uh, your comments about uh, the uh, production value chain aspects of, uh, of ammonium and the uh, possibilities uh, of scalability and the uh, cost effectiveness, but also the, uh, the emphasis on the safety aspects that need to be clarified, and of course, the technology maturity that needs to be in place so that uh, we can see ammonia as part of the fuel mix. Um, now, we, we shifted from a fuel that has already been kind of mature uh, and uh, used in the industry uh, when we uh, discussed with Mr. Barr the LNG uh, part. Uh, then we um, attempted a forward uh, look at the mid to long term with uh, ammonia uh, and uh, Ms. Plakantanakis' um, uh, points. I'd like to bring us a bit closer to the short-term uh, and the more mature solutions um, by looking at the potential of methanol. Uh, and I turn to Mr. Mano. Are we witnessing the rise of uh, methanol as, uh, as fuel is 
is it uh, too daring to say that uh, uh, there is a, 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 a significant interest uh, in, in methanol as fuel? Um, uh, and is it claiming its share, like LNG did, as a fuel of choice for those looking to reduce CO2 emissions today? Thank you, George. Thank you, everyone, for uh, having me on the panel. You started saying uh, uh, we're getting closer to something more mature. I would say, yes, possibly getting closer to the ground as well. Um, we at MC uh, Capital, of course, we're, you know, believe we're great believers in methanol. Uh, over a year ago, we set up a joint venture called the Clean Sea Transport, where we heavily invested in uh, methanol dual fuel uh, product tankers um, in cooperation, in partnership, in fact, with, uh, with Methanex, which is the, the world's largest producer, and we intend to continue doing so. Now, you say the rise and the renaissance of methanol, I think uh, if you go back to 2010, 2012, that's where perhaps, uh, you know, that was perhaps the turning point. Our company has already taken delivery of dual fuel methanol tankers in 2016, and then again in 2019, and recently in 2021, the third generation already of the methanol powered vessels. And I think, um, yeah, what we like about it and what we think could basically um, secure its place in the future of decarbonization, it's first of all, it's simplicity, it's availability. Unlike some of the alternatives, it's, it's liquid at ambient, temp ambient temperature. Uh, I think the capex of actually um, building, you know, dual fuel in terms of the engine components and the fuel system components is uh, more competitive than any other uh, available alternative fuel at the moment. And um, as we said, it's uh, it's quite safe. You handle it like a liquid, like the normal bunkers we were used to. And uh, one of the things that stopped us from, of, of stopped this perhaps from uh, you know, developing further in the in the past was of course the, the availability as a, as a bunker fuel. This is something you know, we're working on and it's gonna develop in the future. And also it's uh, pricing. And interesting enough, over the past uh, few months, uh, we've seen, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, LNG prices are going up quite significantly. Of course, you know, the HFO, the conventional bunker fuel price is going uh, up significantly. And methanol on the other hand, becoming more and more competitive. But at this point in time, as a matter of fact, um, methanol as a fuel is just slightly more competitive or at par more or less with VLSFO and even cheaper than um, uh, low sulfur uh, you know, gas oil. And that's not always been the case. And of course, no one can um, guarantee that this will be the case in the future, but I think it does demonstrate that pricing dynamics, they do change quite dramatically. And there are times where we can see an alternative fuel, a cleaner fuel, and that actually uh, has also pricing advantages. Now, the other thing that we really like about it when we talk into the future is the ability of the transition in methanol production, you know, kind of developing hand in hand with the transition of, um, you know, the clean, you know, clean shipping, the whole decarbonization process. So the methanol we're all looking at and working and burning today is, is in fact very methanol and that does not offer dramatic savings in emissions. It's about 15% on a, on a world to wake, but it's, uh, you know, it's nowhere where we could, you know, when people talk about green hydrogen or green ammonia or even green methanol, we're not, we're not there yet. But the, the great thing about it is that the methanol is ultimately gonna be the same methanol. So as we now burn, as a matter of fact, we've, you know, we actually burn now methanol. We have over 40,000 hours of engine hour, um, you know, running hours on methanol already, just us as a company. So we see that uh, we can burn the grain now, 
it can become blue as blue becomes more available you know, globally and blue production, blue methanol production is actually happening. And as green methanol uh, production is also taking place you know, in significant scale and becomes more competitive, you can use the same ship, same engine, same fuel system you know, to burn that. So it actually gives you the path into 2030, 2040, 2050 and, uh, and beyond, of course. So whereas we've seen LNG was definitely kind of the, the favorite solution, um, you know, I think up until recently, and, and will continue to be, we don't think there's gonna be one single winner here, one single alternative fuel, of course, but that's also the fact that it's, you know, people are more familiar with it. It's been much wide, more wider, uh, widely available. We've had LNG carriers burning, you know, LNG for many, many, many years now. So I think the natural inclination was, you know, let's burn, build a ship that can, you know, can also burn LNG. We already have the engines. But um, again, I, I think as we see also in the other book now, we've had uh, over 40 dual fuel methanol vessels ordered just over the past 12 months, you know, up from, you know, a handful, you know, 10 or, you know, five or 10 the year before. So I think it's quite a dramatic change. And I think it's definitely, um, you know, gaining ground and will hold ground as, as this, uh, you know, process develops. Interesting, interesting points. Uh, and um, the, the points that you raised uh, with regards to how um, a methanol ship could actually follow the carbonization trajectory um, by introducing um, carbon neutral molecules is, a, is, a, is an interesting one. And it's a good segue to my next question. Um, and I'd like to turn to Mr. Cameron. Um, can, we, can we move forward as an industry without this uh, well to wake perspective? What are your thoughts uh, about it? Um, and uh, there are discussions now, this, there are proposals that submitted uh, to the IMO through the MEPCs. Um, what, what is missing uh, and what do we need with regards to carbon neutrality and life cycle approach so that we can have this type of solutions? What are your thoughts about uh, uh, well, to, well to wake? Great, thanks, George, and thanks for, thanks for the invite for being here. Um, let me come to that. I just want to pick up, if I can, on a couple of points that were made before. And I think contextually, I think it's important to remember that we've had almost the luxury as an industry of being, you know, the waste product user. So we've had a bit of an artificial ride when it comes to the cost of bunkers since, you know, we've moved away from coal. So, you know, by being an end, you know, sort of bottom of the pile user, we're now being brought into the mainstream of the world by using clean, clean fuels. And this is a challenge that, you know, we're not facing alone. And I sometimes think that we can segment our industry out into its own little neat package and try and solve the problem for ourselves without thinking in the broader context that uh, the solutions we're talking about, many other industries, in fact, countries are looking at the, the problems in the same way. So let's not isolate ourselves to just thinking this is a shipping problem. I think uh, land-based competition for fuel sources is absolutely going to be you know, one of the big um, considerations that we haven't had to think about before. So when we're talking about you know, what angle are we going to take as an industry, um, we've also got to be looking at where, where are those fuel types and, and resources going to be um, used in much more proliferation in, in terms of volumes. Um, and of course, that's definitely going to be in the land-based industries. 
Um, I think in terms of ammonia, we run the risk of oversimplifying certain parts of this. And I, I certainly have no intention to discredit any of the uh, fuels that we're talking about here, because simply because we can't afford to. But let's be honest about ammonia. We can't engineer out toxicity. We can do many, many other things around, around fuels and, and our ability to transport them, to burn them, but you can never engineer out toxicity. And that's one of the biggest questions that I think sometimes in these conversations, we tend to package away and say, you know, it's okay, we'll get to that when, when we can. Um, let's also not forget that pilot fuel in many of these, these solutions is a consideration. And we have to be honest with ourselves about that and say, you know, when we're talking about alternative fuels, it's a trajectory and we're going to move uh, over time in this direction. So having a pilot fuel introduced together with, with methanol pneumonia is a reality. And that's okay, right? Because it's not, it, it's not you know, as if we're, we're talking about a dirty word here. Um, I really think that some of the, 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 the challenges we're talking about are always end state instead of saying, where can we start? And Modi's got some great examples there that he, he was talking about, about his reality and Bud as well and, and Charles. Um, but I also think that sometimes starting with generators and just replacing a diesel generator right now with an alternative type of fuel product, smaller amounts need to be carried on board. Um, there can be easier trials performed that aren't related to main engines. So that's a very important uh, thing just to consider the, the importance of a diesel generator being replaced right now. So to your question about, you know, kind of well-to-wake, I think no doubt there has to be a well-to-wake consideration in this because that's the way every other industry and every other country is going to be faced, facing the same challenge. So if you take that argument away and just consider it with tank to wake or something, I think we're really fooling ourselves in the whole equation. And I come back to what I said right at the beginning. This is a much bigger um, question than just what shipping is facing alone. We have to be looking at the alternative sources and the competitive alternative sources that land-based use is going to be looking at. So if we're not all measured by the same standards in terms of production, then we're just isolating shipping into a false environment that, that may give us some immediate comfort, but not actually serve the bigger purpose. Thank you so much. Um, I'd also like to uh, to uh, have uh, uh, Mr. Dar's um, opinion on, on the well to wake and what is required: standardization, um, a universal approach. Do we do we have it? How far are we from that? And um, what is it? What is required for these carbon neutral molecules to arrive at our ships? Yeah, thank you, George. I'd just like to start by saying, Mark, uh, well done. I think uh, I, I think all of your comments really resonate with me, and, and I, I I'd like to associate myself with every comment Mark just made. I thought they were really spot on. I'll add on to that and and say that when I look at the value in a well to wake approach, I think there's you know two things that come to mind. Um, one is that we need as many fuel options as we can realistically get at volume. And as Mark pointed out, and I'll maybe add a little more specificity on it, you know, this is the most two to 3% uh, 
most important two to three percent of the emissions profile in the planet to us, right? But if you look at the overall energy markets, you know, we're, we're a relatively small part of it. We're not going to drive the large scale production and delivery of the fuels. So we need to be realistic about where can we catch a ride off of some of these other users. And they are looking at the well to wake approach. So I think if you limit yourself to tank to wake, I think Mark's right. You end up in this false you know, set of, of assumptions about how well you're really doing uh, if you only look at what comes out of the stack rather than what went into production of the fuel. The second point I'll make about a well to wake approach is you can't get the benefit of say production of an e-methanol or production of an e-methane on the upstream side of the life cycle unless you're willing to accept the regulatory burden of the upstream portion of the life cycle. You can't have it both ways. And in my opinion, and we don't take um, quite as optimistic of a view of the tank to wake um, approach with gray methanol today as as perhaps Modi's experience would say they've had. we, we don't have that level of experience he's had, but we don't hold out a, a 15% tank awake benefit right now for, for greenhouse gases overall, but it doesn't matter whether it's zero. And we tend to think it's something more like about equal if you look at the entire life cycle for gray methanol um, to, be, to be used right now. We need methanol in the fuel mix. And the way you get from that sort of a profile where you're breaking even or maybe making 15% against the benchmark that you're trying to achieve in decarbonization is on the upstream. So, you know, we've got to get credit for that production through a bio or synthesized method um, in, in order to make that all fit together and have these fuels available. Otherwise, we just won't have enough options of volume for what we really need. And if you look at what has to happen for ammonia, and, and like Mark, I'm not criticizing any of these fuels. I see all of them having a role for us, and we're making investments, I want to be very clear, that accommodate all of them for the future. And that's part of our thinking and, and how this future will look for us. But if you, you, you look at ammonia, what has to happen, there is, you know, to supply e-ammonia for shipping alone. You need basically the renewable power supply that's available on the planet today as a starting point. Then you have to produce green hydrogen through catalyzer, um, electrolyzers, which don't exist yet. And then you have to get enough of that hydrogen diverted towards what we need rather than the other users. And then there's more power needed and a catalyst process to actually create the green ammonia to then be transported through a non-existent midstream right now to get to where it's actually needed on the ship where there are a significant amount of safety issues that need to be resolved. And we do have to figure out how we're going to deal with this pilot fuel issue. It is significant, as Mark said. It's depending on which OEM you talk to, you might get an estimate between 5 to 30% pilot fuel that's needed. And what that pilot fuel is and where it comes from and how you have to store it really has a big impact on the analysis. So I'm an optimist on this. I really think we're going to get there. It's just, it shouldn't be oversimplified into sound bites or ideology. It should really follow hard work and science and technological growth. All good and valid points, Mr. Dar. Um, and um, we have been discussing a lot about um, the dynamics of this uh, uh, 
landscape of fuels that is in development right now. Um, I'd like to turn to uh, Ms. Plakantonaki and change a bit uh, the perspective or um, uh, change a bit our gears. Uh, it, there's a lot of discussion about how um, a net zero future would look like. And when we're discussing about fuels, there is a debate on whether we should include in that fuel spectrum um, nuclear solutions as well. Uh, there is a debate on whether we should consider them a technology uh, or a, an energy source or a fueling source. Um, is a net zero dream a nuclear dream? And um, is it something that uh, you see uh, happening, considering in, uh, in your company um, in the midterm or long term? Thank you, Georgios. Uh, indeed, a very uh, interesting question, as there's a lot of debate uh, concerning um, nuclear power. Now, uh, nuclear power in the maritime industry is not something new, um, and it, uh, it does have the potential to contribute to our industry's 2050 target uh, in the sense that it is, uh, it is net zero. Um, and uh, uh, although there is a, a very high uh, capital expenditure involved when it comes to nuclear uh, uh, propulsion, uh, the operating expenses are expected to be low uh, because it is said that uh, uh, onboard reactors would uh, require refueling only every few years. Uh, now, now, leaving the financial side of, of nuclear power aside, uh, the major barrier when it comes to nuclear power is, of course, uh, the public's perception on whether uh, nuclear propulsion is something safe. And same as uh, with ammonia that we talked about before, again, safety comes first. Uh, so, um, uh, especially in shipping, uh, where we have issues such as uh, corrosion, vibration, etc., uh, reactors for marine propulsion would need to be extremely trustworthy. Uh, therefore, it is important uh, that we do see maritime uh, safety standards being developed uh, for all green fuels, including nuclear power, we're going to be considering it for, for, uh, for marine use. Uh, otherwise, we're not in a position to assess their technical and economic feasibility. Uh, now, if the safety aspect of nuclear is, is clarified in the coming years, of course, as a company, we would be open to consider it. Uh, same as we're considering any green fuel in the market. We are fuel agnostic, so uh, we're trying to do our homework on every possible solution that could contribute to shipping decarbonization in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so the, I see that there is a, a consensus that um, the fueling issue is a is a very complicated one in the in in uh, um, in in the sense that it has a lot of um, elements and criteria that need to be um, reviewed when decision making has to happen. That being said, we've discussed a lot about safety aspects, even security aspects. We discussed about uh, uh, economical aspects. Um, now, when we want to um, make a decision uh, with regards to uh, a decarbonization-related action, uh, fuel selection, um, what are the implications on a, on a, on a company, uh, from a company perspective? 
looking at the broader uh, narrative about ESG, will a particular decision on the decarbonization solutions define actions that go beyond the pure environmental activities? And I'd, I'd like to, to listen to uh, Mr. Manu's view on that. I think uh, compliance and the regulations and the, the decarbonization process, of course, have uh, could potentially have dramatic effects on our strategic and uh, commercial decisions. I think starting with the relatively easy bit, which is just compliance. I think if all of us just wanted to comply, that would be a fairly easy you know, target to, to achieve. And that would not uh, result in dramatic changes because just by virtue of having more economical engines today, and you know, we would all be compliant for quite a few more years to come. And then we can start introducing different blends and, and, and fuels, which just save a little bit. But I don't think that's what's uh, ultimately um, driving it. I think the, there's a combination of things. Let's call it you know, some, some hard factors, which is um, you know, financing and investors' perception. So are shareholders actually driving this? Or will they be? Are, are shareholders, for example, uh, happy to see slightly lower uh, returns on their share, but uh, invest in cleaner companies. I think the jury is still out. When it comes to raising, you know, capital, I think unless this capital has been dedicated and raised up front for the purpose of investing, you know, in ESG technologies, you know, mostly people would still want to see return first, and you know, ESG and compliance as I wouldn't say secondary, but um, you know, alongside with it. Financing, I think quite clearly you would, you would see that uh, the banking system, the, the, the financial markets are gearing towards uh, making cheaper capital available. Uh, whether it's through subsidies, you know, government guarantees or you know, different other, other products and schemes which are available out there. So that is gonna be a consideration for, for some companies. But I think the main, the main effect is actually gonna come from the, from the customer. From, from the charter in, in our case and you know customer and and and, and you see that's the self-regulated type of industry we are at the end of the day and you see the poseidon principles and you see you know announcements from some you know other multinationals companies like unilever and um you know commodity trades and stuff like that ultimately your customer wants to see you know a cleaner logistical solution for the transport of its commodity or its product because his customer wants to see. And that's, you know, that I think at the end of it boils down to our children who grow up uh, in a different environment today and they go to school and they get different education than perhaps we did, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, I won't disclose. <laughs> and, and, and then you see that their expectation is totally different. They, they really want to see cleaner products. You know, it starts by the paper and the way they, they use, um, you know, they, they, they recycle stuff and, and to the way they transport and how they view it, the, you know, the first car they get when they're 18 or 20 years old. And, and that's driving it. And I think that's where we're going to be well beyond compliance. And I think that, that's, that's, that's why it's happening now. That's why it's happening in the big way. That's probably why you have, uh, I think, something like 450 LNG dual fuel vessels on order and another 40 dual fuel methanol tankers, not because we need them today or tomorrow because we're all in an environment in companies which at the end of the day want to be part of decolonization. We understand the goal, our customers and our stakeholders understand the goal. So I think what's driving it is, is at the moment more that than actual uh, compliance. Of course, you need the regulation, you need the directives, and I agree with you need the world to wake approach, of course, um, but a little bit like class. You know, class basically sets the minimum standard we all need to comply with. 
most of shipping companies would want to be even better than that. And I think same same for uh, decarbonization. Um, we would all need to comply, and every year compliance is going to be slightly you know tougher, and, and requirements are going to be a bit stricter. But ultimately, most of us are going to want to be well ahead of that curve. Excellent. I, I highly appreciate your comments on the social aspects of the drivers, as well as the role of class in uh, in the whole picture. Um, well noted. I will uh, take us uh, down to ground level now. Uh, um, we, before we uh, conclude, I'd like to uh, ask Mr. Cameron one last uh, question um, before we have a, a a, a closing discussion on the broader decarbonization aspects. There is a discussion about using uh, emission abatement technologies so that uh, um, uh, carbon-based fuels can uh, continue to be used for the transition period. Um, how do you see these type of, of technologies being implemented? Carbon capture, is it going to be indeed the game-changing technology that uh, uh, the industry is uh, uh, considering it? I'm, I'm glad you're squeezing that in right at the end because I think it's it's a vital vital part of the whole, the whole consideration. Fossil fuels are going to be around. Let, again, let's not kid ourselves here. Fossil fuels are going to be around. We've got some very, very important targets to meet 25, 30, and 50. And I think those, those targets and timelines are only going to compress. They're not going to elongate. Anybody who thinks that's living in la-la land, um, and rightfully so, those, those targets and timelines must come shorter. Carbon um, capture is going to be a reality of our time. Uh, probably long before some of the other, you know, kind of uh, things that we're talking about are really going to have mainstream operation. Let's not forget that the liner trades, the big container carriers like Bud represents, these are going to be the guys that set both the volumes and the fuel types in the locations. For Modi and myself, and, and I think Charis, who's out there, we're tramp trading. We're going to have a completely different profile of lifting, and we're going to rely on the big predictable drivers in this transition to, to start to say where the fuel types can, can be lifted and what is going to be available in those areas. Carbon capture for the rest of us is going to be an essential part. And even if you're talking about, you know, as we talked about earlier with the, the pilot fuel types, capturing a bit of that carbon uh, and you don't have to capture everything, just a percentage of carbon. And we know there's complexities with it in terms of storing it on board, but it can be done. And those uh, these compact pieces of equipment that are coming out now really are, are going to be a game changer in terms of helping us meet those, those short-term trajectories. What's really important is what you do with the carbon, where the offtake facilities for, for are gonna be on the ships. Uh, and I think certainly in the tanker trades, how is, how is Ockham going to respond in terms of uh, helping us uh, set those standards? How are we going to find um, uh, vetting standards being applied uniformly by those people coming on our ships to evaluate them? And that applies to all of us. Um, so I think that that's vital. I'm conscious that time is, is running out, but I just wanted to make the point on the ESG side. It's great that that so many of us um, who attend these panels and talk on these panels represent largely public companies or, or certainly um, well-financed companies. A lot of players in this industry are very small people and they're subject to the, the vagaries of the market, the earnings potential can be boom or bust as we know for so long. Um, so I think 
shipping is still a cheap option for moving goods. Until we get some stability in pricing mechanisms, um, we're going to have to really just bite down hard to understand that um, when the going is good, we don't just put that money straight back into dividends, we plow it back into good, solid capital allocation policies that really look towards technology and future fuels as a part of that. And that's where ESG needs to come uh, in, in people's annual reports to, to really say what they're doing. Thank you so much, Mr. Cameron. Um, I did note uh, your uh, comments on carbon capturing technology. Um, now we are almost out of time. We have a couple of minutes left uh, and I will kindly ask you to attempt uh, what it is um, normally very difficult challenge, but um, to provide the audience with an elevator speech on whether our industry is on track to meet the net zero future for 2050, if this likelihood um, from a regulatory perspective is actually materialized. So I will start with uh, Ms. Black Antonaki. What, what, what do you think? Are we are we there? Are we on track? Thank you. Can we do it? So, so it's uh, it's important to stress, and but uh, made a reference to it earlier that shipping is not alone in this effort. Other sectors who are much larger contributors to global warming will have to contribute to the technological advancements um, that are required to take us to 2050. Um, Unfortunately, right now, the situation of, of the war, this is not helping. Uh, we may be seeing an increase in the use of coal uh, instead of scaling it down, as promised during uh, COP26. But, but still, the implications of uh, climate change on humanity are huge. Uh, and because, that, uh, because of that, public pressure is expected to drive the political will that uh, will live up to the Paris Agreement goals. Uh, so uh, uh, this will drive regulation, government spending and incentives, which are necessary because public sector is not alone to pull this challenge off. So in a nutshell, I am optimistic that we will be seeing good progress on the 2050 trajectory. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Mr. Dar, what are your views on this? So I, I think our industry got a bit of a slow start. And I think that uh, in fairness, even if you look back 12, 18, 24 months ago, there were some that were really dragging their heels on this. I think we're doing great now. I, I really think we've turned a huge corner. The industry as a whole supports net zero for 2050. Governments aren't ready for that yet. I wish they were, they need to catch up. We support uh, carbon pricing on a global level and a market-based measure on a global level. Governments aren't there yet, they need to be. That's an essential part of making this work. Industry also supports massive injection of research and development. We've made a proposal which we would fund. Governments weren't ready for that yet. If they weren't ready for that, they need to step up to the plate and they need to do it. The long pole in the tent for us here is not gonna be us, because I do think you're starting to see the capital flow in the right places. You're starting to see the commitments we need and the ecosystem involving our customers coming together and aligning with this, but it's gonna be, do we have the fuel? It doesn't do any good to have the ship if you don't have the fuel. And we're really good at a lot of things. We're not good at producing fuels and delivering fuels in an infrastructure that doesn't exist yet. Um, that's gotta happen by the energy providers with assistance of, of others to make this all come together. That's gonna to be the critical path 
But I think we are on track. It took us a while to get on track and we should stay there and remain very positive that we'll make it. Another optimistic view. Thank you for that. Mr. Mano. I think, yeah, my, my view is quite optimistic too. I think uh, if, if, if we're talking about, you know, the shipping industry, and that's the beauty about a highly competitive industry with a lot of creative people who need to survive. I mean, we, you know, the industry is very inventive. It's creative. Um, uh, it's very responsive to, to reality and what has to be done and, and resilient at the end of the day. So just again, as, as uh, Bud said, you know, look back at what has happened over the past 18 months. It's unbelievable compared to the rest of the world compared to other economy, uh, you know, sec sectors in the, you know, the, in the economic uh, landscape. We already have charter party clauses, which deal with cleaner fuels and transition fuels. You know, we, we're, we're talking about pricing and we have pricing visibility and we, we're talking about supply and, and how do we source the supply? And I totally agree with Bud, you know, on that front, I mean, we're not gonna become, you know, energy companies or we don't intend to become at least energy companies and, um, you know, and manufacturing companies, but but we're doing what we can within within our um, um, you know kind of uh, network. So I personally believe in technology, and I think the technological solutions are gonna are gonna come. There's plenty of time to implement them. I believe in the social responsibility that you know each one of us has, and you know is driven by our shareholders, financiers, and families. At the end of the day, I think that the capital will be found. It always ultimately gets uh, you know gets found. And, um, and we're going to basically divert the resources and put them in the right place. So, so it's real, it's happening. I think it's, it's, you know, we do, we don't talk. As an industry, I think we do. Thank you, Mr. Manu. And final uh, thoughts I'll be from quick. Mr. Cameron. I'll be quick because Nick's there to take us out. Don't forget the diesel generators. Don't forget that you can replace diesel generators. They're a significant contributor to the equation and people seem to just focus on main engines. Right now, replace the diesel generator. Valuable notes and ideas and thoughts there. And we are actually closing this with uh, some really, really positive attitude. So Mr. Bornozis, the floor is yours now. Thank you, everybody. Well, I have the easy part uh, because all I want to do is thank you for uh, a great discussion as expected, a terrific insight on a very critical topic. So George, thank you for moderating. Harris, uh, Mark, uh, Bud and Modi, uh, thank you very, very much for uh, being part of this great panel. And of course, the, uh, this session will be available upon demand shortly uh, for those who would like to access it uh, online again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you very much.